Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 89 to Astana. Astana, yes. It sounds so exotic. Hey, that's an interesting city. I know you've been there, but wow. Yeah, it is, right? It is very... Um how do I describe that? I mean, it's a new city. I mean, we'll talk about it at the end of the show, but it it has uh, quite some features, especially the weather that makes it quite eerie in yes. a good way. Yes, very eerie is the right word. It's uh, enchanting in many ways. I don't know what to expect, and I'm quite keen to go back now. Oh, cool. I'm going to probably also go back this year again. So, I mean, again, no, it was 2018 when I went last. So we'll talk about the airport, interesting features there. Uh, and also for me, it was the first time I went, it was uh, almost like a different airport than the one you've encountered that I've seen last November because they invested a lot in it. So they did, it shows. Yes. A forward before we start the first topic of this show. Obviously, we're going to talk about the 737. The forward is that... You know, every time such uh, tragedy happens, first of all, we don't really like to talk about them. So we tend to avoid talking about airline disasters. Of course, the story is so big that we cannot avoid it. And also, we don't want to be, you know, these armchair analysts that are talking and speculating. Because, you know, there's, it's different, guys, to speculate about a new seat or whatever Al Baker just said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's fun, and there's no consequence. And we might be wrong. Here, it's speculating on a tragedy. It's uncomfortable. So we're going to try to uh, avoid too much speculation. And uh, please forgive us if we do. But the first thing that anyone should be thinking, and that we are clearly thinking about when such things happen, is that there's 157 people who died. And that's uh, no fun at all. So can you maybe just maybe start with the facts, and then we'll go over what happened? Yeah, I mean, this this is the second of two crashes, which uh, statistically makes it uh, very, very strange indeed. 1% of all these airplanes have crashed, which is a staggering statistic. But the accident that we're referring to was an Ethiopian Airlines 737 MAX 8 that crashed shortly after takeoff. Shortly after takeoff, the pilots declared an emergency and reported airspeed indication fluctuations and difficulty controlling the airplane. And that was the last thing that, that they, they broadcast. And the plane hit the ground at a staggering rate. I mean, there was nothing left, um, not to yeah. get into to morbid detail, but they have not been able to recover any bodies. There are hardly any debris. It's it's frankly a miracle that the, that the data recorders survived, but they are designed to survive such an impact. But the reason why this was such a, a tragedy beyond tragedy is that this airplane was four months old. Yeah, brand new, yeah. And immediately the characteristics mirrored an accident that happened a few months ago in Indonesia with Lion Air in mm. an eerily similar fashion. And I think that's mm. that's what prompted a lot of people, both armchair analysts like ourselves and the industry at large, to go, there's something fundamentally wrong here for this airplane to have crashed in such a similar way. It's awful. It's 350 people dead now because of this this 
strange anomaly in this aircraft design, which I'm sure we'll we'll dissect as as best we can in our non-technical way. But it's a it's a really rather extraordinary set of circumstances. Yeah, and before we go into you know what might have happened, what happened, maybe just the because we're recording March fifteenth, twenty nineteen. It's a Friday. I mean, the past few days have been completely insane. I mean, I've rarely, if ever, seen such noise around. Of course, it's a crash. There's always noise. But the domino effect of the events were pretty staggering. You started, obviously, with, with the tragedy, the sad crash. Immediately, Singapore, China, Brazil, Australia, Malaysia uh, started to ban the aircraft. Either ask their operators to not fly the aircraft, that's China, or like Singapore to simply ban the aircrafts of the airspace. And then we had individual airlines doing that, starting by Cayman Airways, Comair, Gold, Mongolian, Royal Air Maroc, uh, Aerolinas Argentina, Aeromexico, etc., etc. And there was like this feeling of nonstop, every half an hour there was new news. And then for a bit, both the Europeans and the Americans were not doing anything. Then suddenly the UK, France, Ireland, Germany, I think Italy as well, all either asked their uh, operators to stop and or ban the aircraft from the, the airspace. And at the end, the last remaining one was uh, the US, uh, which was very last to announce the grounding of these aircraft. And it, the way it was done, it was also pretty staggering. First, there was calls from Congress. It was calls from unions of flight attendants. There were people like Ted Cruz and Mitt Romney. Whatever you think about their politics, very quickly tweeted that this airplane should be grounded. And then suddenly, uh, Donald Trump comes and writes this very bizarre tweet about aircrafts are becoming too complicated. And the next day, basically, he announces the grounding. So he does a, a public statement announcing the grounding, immediately followed by the FAA, who grounded the, the aircraft. So now, the, basically, the aircraft is uh, fully grounded. If you go on Flight Radar 24, Plane Finder, all these things, you cannot find it. Besides a few, maybe still today, a few repositioning. Uh, I think Air Canada, for instance, had a um, an authorization to reposition their flights back to Canada, obviously, that, that, that makes sense. It was really staggering. We had actually quite a lot of our listeners telling us, uh, you should do like uh, an episode about this because this story is incredible. And as I said at the beginning, we wanted to avoid being like too headliney. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it was crazy. It was crazy. And I was talking to my wife about this, that, you know, when the Dreamliner battery issue emerged yeah. and... There was, I don't know, you know, this was, oh my goodness, several years ago, obviously. There was a similar global response and it was making headlines, not just in the industry, but, in, you know, on the front pages of newspapers, but that wasn't causing people to die. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the reaction here has been unprecedented, but also, in my opinion, warranted, at least until we get to the bottom of this I feel like the three issues, three incidents, and I say three for on purpose, there's this Ethiopian one, there's a Lion Air one, and now there's some speculation that an older version of the, the system that is undergoing so much scrutiny, MCAS, which we'll talk about later, might also have been a contributing factor in the Fly Dubai crash a couple of years ago in Russia. So that level of scrutiny on this this important piece of software and engineering is is pretty interesting. And it's also what divided a lot of people. And even if we exclude all the, you know, the keyboard warriors, you know, calling for the airplane to be grounded without any kind of knowledge, even pilots were saying, we don't have 
yet any kind of even hint of what happened with Ethiopian. I mean, yesterday we had like some anonymous sources about what might have been said in the cockpit, but it's still, you know, like a very early, the investigation started, but we have no result. And some people were saying, yeah, but so since we don't know, there's no reason for the airplane to be grounded. And others were saying, yep, yeah, but as a precautionary measure, you should. And that's actually very interesting. When the UK CAA announced the grounding, they said, we do not currently have sufficient information from the flight data recorder, but we have a precautionary measure issued instruction to stop any commercial passenger flights, et cetera, et cetera. So they were very cautious. And that's that was a little bit of the divide you could see even amongst the industry, what should be done. And probably within the FAA as well, even though we'll talk a little bit later, there's, there's criticisms about how the FAA handled yeah. this. But, but anyway, the plane is now grounded. So even though that's where I'm uncomfortable and you are as well, it's slightly into speculation mode. Because we still don't know if that MCAS was the reason from that crash. We're not even sure if it was from the Lion Air, by the way. This is yeah, all that, ongoing that's, investigations. That's that's a problem. But that is the problem. But it's it's in everybody's mind, you know. And even the pilots, the unions in the U.S. of pilots, when the Lion Air crash happened, were furious not to have been told there had been an additional software put on the 737 Max. Because of the new design of the engines, bigger, they were pushed forward, that changed the balance of the aircraft, so when the aircraft accelerates, obviously the aircraft has a tendency to nose up, so the system is there to make sure that there's no stall happening. And, you know, when you think just about that, yeah, why not? The problem is that a lot of pilots were unhappy, they are revoiced their concern now, and the software update, if I, if I may use that word, we're not talking about an iPhone here, but the software update that was kind of promised didn't happen that should be happening by april but maybe maybe just because we're losing maybe part of the audience although i'm sure all of them know maybe we can discuss a little bit of what mcas is first yeah, of yeah if you if you want a a comprehensive but accessible source for this issue as well as frankly most things in aviation john ostrower's mm-hmm. uh site the air current is staggeringly good. I mean, he's been writing for for decades now, but this is a new new platform of his and it's theaircurrent.com. It is so good and he's written so well about this and I'm going to paraphrase him here, but essentially what he's saying is that and he's absolutely right that the 737 Max as is every new airframe development is just a bunch of compromises, but for the Boeing to deliver on the efficiencies that they promised yeah. at the whiteboard level, they had to, and I like this, I'm quoting him here, they had to fit 12 gallons into an 11-gallon jug. And those bigger engines that you referenced, they had to figure out a way to mount them on the wing of an airplane that is already very low to the very ground. Very low, yeah, yeah. So they raised the landing gear by the nose and changed a little uh, of the aerodynamics, new types of winglets. And then as a result of that higher landing gear, even at takeoff, the nose was higher. And then the larger engines generate their own lift, made it go even higher. So when there were certain aerodynamic conditions, which were in low speed and in wing level flights at low speed and at certain types of turn, and all of these things of course, happened right after takeoff, there was a much higher risk of the airplane going into that nose up attitude and stalling. So they invented this thing, which is not new, called MCAS, which is the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, which is a control law. And that would allow 
both sets of 737, both the Max and the new next generation, which was its predecessor, NG, yep. to behave exactly the same. So you wouldn't have to recertify, you wouldn't have to retrain pilots on how to use it. The plane would, at least theoretically, work the same way. The problem is that the MCAS is triggered by the angle of attack yeah. sensor. That's the most important thing. This is yeah. the critical thing. Yeah. And again, apologies if we're getting too technical here, but if that system detects the angle of attack exceeding a threshold, which is determined in real time based on the altitude and the airspeed. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, for those, just watch on the side of an aircraft. It's a little thing that uh, stands out and basically just measures what is the actual angle of the aircraft. It's also a physical device outside. You can actually see it. Yeah, absolutely. And it when it's activated based on that envelope at certain altitudes and airspeeds, it will move the entire stabilizer, horizontal stabilizer, around a quarter of a degree per second, up to two and a half degrees in 10 seconds. That's the limit. So it was put on the next generation, especially on the 800s, which as an airplane had a reputation for being quite, what was the word? Sporty is how somebody described it. <laughs> uh, sporty characteristics when there was a light load and it was doing things like go around. So not very often that these flight characteristics would happen, but when they did, it was quite a difficult airplane to fly. And that's where the speculation comes in that it was partially involved in the Fly Dubai crash. So imagine that then with way more powerful engines and a lighter airframe and a more aerodynamic airframe having similar quote unquote sporty characteristics. That's that's what happened. Now, the reason why the angle of attack sensor is so important, especially at the Lion Air crash, is because on the previous flight to the crash flight, mm -hmm. there was a huge discrepancy in the angle of attack sensors. There are three angle of attack sensors on a Boeing 737-800 and the MAX. One of them was showing a 20-degree discrepancy with the other two. Yeah. It should never have been allowed in the air in the first place. There was, a, there was a massive fault with that. But when the MCAS is totally dependent on that angle of attack sensor functioning correctly, and pilots, as you say, have not been trained on how to disable that, which apparently is done by activating the trim, or there's another system, which I, I can't remember. The other system that's interesting in terms of UX, the other system, because I've read some pilots' reports about that, the other system is not very intuitive because it goes against the usual way of deactivating something on a, on a Boeing. Yes, and even if you push those trim switches forward... It reactivates. It reactivates later. after five seconds if it still detects that high angle of attack. And I think in the Lion Air, they were trying to deactivate the MCAS system over and over. There is a checklist for disabling it outright, but the airplane was dropping because they had entered this stall and you're kind of into a machine versus human battle. And when you're low to the ground, like both of these airplanes were, I mean, you have seconds to do yeah, that. And one thing that you say here that's very interesting is that, yes, the MCAS could be faulty or could be maybe not redundant enough, meaning what should it do in case there are discrepancy in the data? Should it activate at all? Should it warn the pilots? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could be done and probably Boeing, you know, Boeing are very smart people. They clearly are working on the update. But what you say here is interesting is that it could be that the actual start of the cause is the angle of attack fault. Yeah. That creates then the domino effect within the aircraft 
up to the pilot who has maybe also different information and doesn't know what to do. It, it could be training as well, but it's why the pilots were not happy. Apparently in the manual that they're given, that have been given, the MCAS is only referred at the very end with not a lot of explanation. There's a one hour video for training. I think Southwest, because they, I mean, they rely a lot of 737s, obviously, had created a longer training for that. But neither Southwest or AA and others had ever received and have not still received a flight simulator for that. So meaning... Training, obviously, they should have known, because that's another thing that a lot of people were saying, were pilots sufficiently trained. But at the same time, maybe training material was still, because we were still in the wake of that Lion Air, so maybe were there trained enough, or were they not even unable to be trained because it was not enough to be trained about? I mean, it's, it's complicated, honestly. It's not, uh, it's not black and white. That's what I'm trying to say, because I've heard so many things, and I'm, how do you say that delicately? Um... Because the first crash was Lion Air, going to put a fly Dubai aside for the moment, and because that second crash is in Ethiopia, there was a lot of, I'm, I'm going to use the word racism almost, like, yeah, but you know, of course in these countries it happens. And I'm like, I mean, even on CNN, I remember there was, at the very beginning, they changed our stance quickly, but they were linking this with the fact that Ethiopian had, it was a very famous one because it was a video, had a, a hijacking in the past. And basically saying that because they had a hijacking, it meant that they were not a safe airline, which, by the way, that would mean that all the airlines hijacked 9-11 are not safe because that's the same logic, which is completely irrelevant. So there was a little bit of condescension into judging both the pilots and the airlines and at least Ethiopian, because we know Indonesia has issues, but Ethiopian seems to be, on the face of it, a pretty well-run airline. Yeah, it's uh, an, it has an incredibly good reputation for safety, not just in, in the region, but globally. Yeah. I think this whole manual thing is really what has got pilots and pilot unions so, so upset. And Boeing's answer, because Southwest, as you say, they were really pissed off about this. I shouldn't say that. Southwest's pilot union were really pissed off about this. And the reply back to their question of why was it not included or was it sort of glossed over is, and I'm quoting here, since MCAS operates in situations where the aircraft is under relatively high G-load and near stall, a pilot should never see the operation of MCAS. As such, Boeing did not include an MCAS description in its manual. In this case, MCAS will trim nose is designed to assist the pilot during recover, likely going unnoticed by the pilot. That's insane because it's just happened twice in a few months and it's caught pilots off guard. That, that's, for me, the massive red herring here i don't know maybe that's not the right expression but yeah, there's no, something I know, I not know. right here and also you know going back to the explanation you just gave us about this angle of attack thing the best time to have an angle of attack sensor failure is actually just after takeoff because you still have visual yeah. you can as a pilot you can still see you know where the ground is so you can still judge what you're supposed to do because you're a trained pilot staggeringly both cases this Accident happened just after takeoff. In, in that instance, six minutes after, I mean, it started right away. We have some hints that it started like literally seconds after it took off and took like too much speed, which is still unexplained. And a Lion Air was maybe a little bit longer. So two aircraft, same aircraft, so new, having an accident at the exact same phase of flight, 
opens a lot of questions. Whether or not on which divide you are should have been then grounded or not, I think when we ground Dreamliners because of battery issues, and like you said, that was not lethal, and in the past grounded the DC-10 for a lot of issues, not only the cargo door that was, uh, you know, that led yeah, up to that, that big crash. In, uh, yeah, It was always like erring on the side of caution. And I know it's not a valid comparison, but if you take the Toyota Corolla, they have like 1 million cars made a year. That's 5,000 crashes. If 5,000 crashes of Toyota Corollas would happen, there would be a recall by Toyota. Yeah. There's no way. I mean, in that sense, it felt like, especially of the FAA waiting so long, so long, it's hard to say because it was a few days in the end of the day, but it created a mistrust towards the FAA. I, I don't yeah. know. There was, it, it's strange. It is strange. And again, I feel maybe we've been sort of jumping around the whole issue here. The scrutiny has fallen on the most obvious red flag here, which is the MCAS and the relationship between yeah. it and the angle of attack sensor. But what still remains unanswered, I, th I think, in both of those accidents is how did the plane get into an attitude where the MCAS was activated in the first place? Was it because of a faulty sensor or was it experiencing that rare combination of flight characteristics that would enable it. And even if it came on for a second and the pilots felt the nose go down uncommanded and they reacted and that just spiraled off in, yeah. in, into something, which then did kick in the MCAS again. And it was a, a system that they were unfamiliar with. That I think is the root cause here, but you're right. The I, I shouldn't say that I think it's the root cause. Here. I've got no idea what the root cause is. Yeah, we don't have, we don't know. Yeah. We also live, because it's something you mentioned very clearly, we also live in a different era where people know about this stuff and people were actively Googling and finding if their next flight would be a 737. Yeah. Uh, no matter if we don't know, and yes, we don't know, and go back to my example of recalls, well, at this age of super fast information, and of course, misinformation as well, it's probably the role even of Boeing to basically err of the side of caution, even simply to regain the trust of the, you know, there's been many examples, non-aviation related, so again, the, the comparisons are not fully valid, where you'd have a brand that says, you know what, we're going to recall all the products from the shelves, just because we want to stop raising suspicions, and we're going to restock later on with a new batch. I'm not saying that here Boeing should scrap all of the currents at 737, but simply to regain the trust of the public, which is at the end, the people who are flying, right? Who are passengers. So almost the apathy of the FAA here was strange to see. And it's not new, actually. There's been articles showing that since the new administration is in place, a lot of the affairs, and our friend Kendall from Flyers Rice know about this, a lot of the the motions that were put towards the DOT, thus the FAA, were simply not answered. Nobody has done anything. The government shutdown didn't help either, by the way. Yeah. I think you told me that Boeing couldn't go ahead with trying to certify the software update simply because of the shutdown. Yeah, that's what Boeing have claimed. And Boeing itself, you know, again, I believe Boeing is filled with very smart people, very smart engineers. They know what they're doing. But it feels to me, and maybe I'm over-criticizing here, it feels to me that Boeing was, for decades, that company you could fully trust because they seemed to be always ahead of time. Every single time there was something that could be suspicious, they would be there, they would be super quick at answering and addressing the concerns of the public. And it feels, and is it because suddenly, you know, the 
the top brass left Seattle and are in Chicago, like a bit disconnected from the engineers back in Seattle. Yep. It feels like now they are almost reactive. And in this instance, when the FAA after Trump announced the grounding, the statement of Boeing was almost comical. And I'm sorry here, because that's not very nice to say, because the day before, Boeing was uh, imploring the administration not to ground. So it was like, there's also maybe a cultural shift at Boeing that they need to, to look into. I think so too. And also, you know, the, this dangerous balance of profit and safety is reasonably well, yeah. unique to this industry. I mean, it, it's very, very difficult. And, and you know, they've been, as John Ostrower has, has pointed out many, many times, they've been building on the same airframe for nearly 60 years. Platform, I should say, not airframe. Even more than that, because the 737 was created, what, in the 60s, mid-60s, probably? Mm -hmm. But it's itself based on the 727 and 707. So it's not here to say that this is a bad design. It's one of the best, if not the best aircraft in the world, right? It's the most successful, at least, along with the 320. But even in the last versions before this, where they pulled, like uh, we explained, the engines in the front, they were adding weight on the wings to balance. I'm sure at least that means that it's probably the last ever iteration of the 737 and they will have to, for the whatever comes next, they will have to do an entire new airframe. And maybe, I'm again uncomfortable speculating like that. Maybe they were also doing this because, like you said earlier, they shouldn't have to recertify and all the airlines in the world, and there's a lot of shit ton using the 737, didn't have to recertify their pilots. So it's a great economical proposition there because you're like, yeah. oh, there's a new aircraft and you put it in the mix of your fleet. It just works. You know, It's plug and play almost. I'm not accusing Boeing to have done that exclusively for profit. But maybe there's something to be said about that. I yeah, I, I think so, too. And, and Boeing certainly are not the only no, uh, no, 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 no. manufacturer that do this within and outside of the industry. But what's strange about it is that this was going to be such a huge home run for Boeing. There were over 5,000 orders at a book value of over 650 billion US dollars. Garuda Indonesia have already canceled their entire order book, which is 49 airplanes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. It will, they're claiming now that it could be May until they have this software available for patching. I guess that's oh, the only expression okay. that I because know. Because yesterday I've read that, I think Canada is going to spill the beans and said that the grounded will at least be for three weeks. But if you say May, would they reallow the plane in the air before the, the software update? I'm not sure. I don't know. And I think, again, the, the main criticism here, and it comes back to this thing is, you know, are they just going to try and out-engineer physics again with a software patch? And that, that can only in my opinion, and, and badly. When you have a single point of failure in these angle of attack sensors, that is, what are they going to do to do this, to, to fix this? I, I'm not smart enough to know. I'm about as far away from an engineer as you can get. Even if there's three angle of attack sensors that are providing, you know, the best information they can, you know, they're voting in real time to see who's who's right. Yeah, who's right. Three, and they send that information to the MCAS system. That's still a, you know, a systemic single point of failure. Some people were saying, and again, we're not specialists here, oh, should simply MCAS being disabled until it reaches a certain altitude, again, because the pilots have visual during takeoff most of the time, so they should be able to actually deal it themselves. 
But there's a database in the United States uh, from NASA, which is an anonymous database where pilots can report things that they see, that they experience in the air. And there's been pilots from 737 MAX 8s that complained. There's even like a harrowing, I'm just going to use that, a harrowing transcript where pilot keeps repeating, don't sink, don't sink, don't sink in the air. So the, the aircraft goes down, probably because the MCAS or the angle of attack, again, we don't know exactly was triggered and he doesn't know what to do. And that's a U.S. pilot in the U.S. in a different phase of flight. So I don't know. I, I trust Boeing because I think they're smart and they're going to figure it out. And I don't think we will ditch the aircraft because, like you said, there are so many that are being ordered, but they're still being built. I mean, they're, what, 57 a day or something, right? Yeah, 57 a month, yeah. A month. I'm so sorry. Yeah, a day. What am I completely That would be impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's 57 a month coming out of, out of Renton, which is a staggering number. Uh, By the way, where are they going to put them? Because they have the authorization to reposition flight without. So they, once an aircraft is finished, they can actually still put it somewhere else. I don't really see where they could put them. Because if you have 57 a month, that goes on for, let's say, two months of grounding. There's just no room at renting with them out. No. Well, exactly. I I don't know how they're going to solve that problem. But do you think they would really cancel it? I don't know. No, think so. I, don't I don't think, think so. so. No matter how much they seemingly have resisted the grounding, I mean, they will find a solution and they will regain trust. I think just that the way they've done it was not conducive of trust. You would have loved that Boeing would have said, you know what, we're not sure, we'll ground it for two weeks ourselves without the FAA telling them. And then people wouldn't have freaked out. The news moves fast, so people will forget about this at some point. But I, I still have a feeling that it was not dealt the best way to reassure the public that this is a safe airplane to fly. No, not at all. And you're right, people are a little worried about this particular airplane. And it's such a shame because I'm sure that it's, in every aspect, a very good airplane. But yes. there's this major issue. And, and the, every new airframe has teething problems or every new sort of iteration on, a, on an airframe has, has teething problems. But you have to wonder if in months and years ahead, we're going to discover that Boeing knew about this the whole time. Ouch. You know? Well, I mean, obviously they knew about it because they've written this, they've built this system to augment it, but they knew that, that there's this sort of small set of circumstances that could happen and result in something like this. I'm sure as well that the debate will clearly be as well on the role of the FAA and how to certify aircraft. Should they certify new iteration, even though if it's the same airframe, like in this case, also the difficulty of actually certifying software, because that's becoming, and that's for everyone. It's not Boeing, Airbus. How do you certify software? I mean, the rules are very strict at the FAA, but we know both because of, of budget cuts, but also because of the difficulty to simply actually do it. Back in like 20, 30 years ago, about 70, 75% of the certifications were done by the manufacturer and then checked by the FAA in the case of the US. Nowadays, 95% is basically Boeing doing their own certification in the FAA. And it's I'm not here saying that the FAA is at fault. I'm saying that maybe they don't have enough manpower, they don't have enough budget to actually being able to do all this work. And they need very smart people to certify against software. And their rules are strict. They are certifying the software, but how far can you go to certify a software? This debate will last a little bit. And it's not only about this 737 MAX 8, it's going to be about all airframes, Airbus, Embraer, whoever. How do we certify aircrafts going forward? Uh, what kind of budget should we give in to these authorities? Because it's becoming complicated. It's software. And I disagree with what uh, President Trump 
with all due respect, said about uh, it was a simpler time when we basically had four buttons, you know, up, down, yeah, left, nonsense. right. <laughs> uh, it's it's nonsense. Software actually helps, and Airbus has proven it. They were the first doing fly-by-wire. They're very safe aircraft. Boeing also has a lot of software, especially in their latest aircraft, and it works. And you're right. I mean, a lot of a lot of pilots have come out and said that statement was was dangerous and and just factually incorrect. I saw an Airbus captain tweet yesterday, the day before yesterday, saying the A380 is exponentially more complicated than the 737 Max, and it flies fine. So. Yeah. Your argument is invalid. Oh, well, at least we'll know at some point what happened. Interestingly, the Ethiopian authorities sent the so-called black boxes. They sent them to the Bureau Enquête. I forgot how it says in French, but basically the equivalent of the NTSB in France, which is a third party. So the third party, the advantage is it's neutral. The disadvantage is that the BA has not always been very fast. No. <laughs> But it's interesting that they wouldn't send it to the U.S. Yeah, it is interesting they wouldn't send it to the U.S. Uh, that's usually what happens if the country in which either the airline belonged to or the accident took place doesn't have the capability to do it themselves. You send it to the country that the airplane was manufactured in. It's slightly unusual, but not unprecedented choice yeah. for them no, to no. do that. And the NTSB have sent representatives. And from what I understand... Honeywell are the only company that can provide people to actually extract the data anyway. So oh, okay. it's sort of that. moot by that point. But, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that yields. I think we, we've covered enough. We didn't uh, like, what, 35, 40 minutes already on this. And um, it's not the funnest bit no, to talk about. it's not fun to talk about. At all. And we were supposed to record a few days ago and then didn't happen. So actually, it's good that we're recording today because now everything is grounded. So the situation is a bit more stable. And back then, a few days ago, again, coming back to my forward, if you want, of this show, I was hesitating. Should we talk about it at all or not? Because I'm a bit always like, a, I repeat this word, uncomfortable. But there was this listener, Haifa al muhammad who sent us, I remembered your praise over Ethiopian Airlines a while ago. I'm saddened and heartbroken with this tragedy. My condolences. And that's the most important. At the end of the day, I'm thinking about the people who lost people there, the people who died, 157 people who passed away uh, tragically. And that's the most important bit of, of this all. And I have a, my dear friend that I keep referring sometimes that will invite one day works at the United Nations, was also very sad and, and infuriated because, of course, he works at the United Nations and he lost, what, 20 people or something, that aircraft said that. I think that's our, the primary concern here. Yeah. Uh, well, so there you go, Kobus. You know, you wanted us to record a podcast about this, you have it. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, I think it's even more fascinating for those that are pilots. Fascinating maybe isn't the right word. There's just so much to digest if you have an engineering bent or so much more to digest if you have an engineering bent or, or an aviation or an avionics or software. Each of those those areas of, of expertise and interest, there's there's so much to just try and wrap your head around here. It's, it's just so difficult. And by the way, guys, before you start trolling us about something we might have said in the past 40 minutes, I might have been wrong because we said at the beginning, we're not experts. Yeah. First, apologies. And if you have anything interesting to say, especially if you're a pilot and engineer, you can always reach out to us, but we'll, we'll learn. We'll learn. That's what the industry, and we keep repeating every time such tragedies, thank God they're very rare nowadays, but such tragedies happen, we will learn because the industry learns very quickly from these yes. uh, past events. 
I will still fly Ethiopian, that's for sure. They are receiving their uh, new Dreamliners in August. I think they're ordering 10. They have a new business class 222 that looks pretty. I mean, it's 222, but again, remember what I said, guys? It's the crew that makes it all, and I I will fly them. I will not shy away from flying them. No, me neither. Um, and also, interestingly, but, Boeing... But, 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 oh, will go, go, go. you... Will you hesitate when that airplane is back in the air? Would you think twice? I don't think so. You? Yeah. I mean, I've always been a Boeing fan. I'm not yeah. not, not saying I like Boeing more than Airbus, but I, I am a fan of both. I've always been a fan of Boeing, and I would, I I would fly on that airplane. If they yeah. think it's fixed, if they think it's airworthy, if, if all of their customers and all of the countries of their customers have said... Yep, we're happy with this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I said it, I think, already twice. Boeing is filled with smart people. They will figure this one out, yep. and we will have a very safe aircraft. Well, anything else you want to say about this, or can we move on? No, let's, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. So, for that event, of course, a lot of the aircrafts were returning back to base. There are other reasons why aircrafts go back to base. <laughs> A few funny stories. One comes from one of our listeners, Fernando Andres, at Dr. Fernando Andre on Twitter. Uh, there's this woman who tweeted Southwest, My friend is in a wedding on Saturday in Costa Rica, but she left her bridesmaid dress here in Houston. Can oh, we no. get her dress on flight 1734 tomorrow? Hashtag worth a try. Well, actually, Southwest did reply... <laughs> We're like, where's your head at? And they actually had uh, someone from Southwest waiting at the airport the next day for a friend of the bridesmaid to actually bring that dress. They flew the dress to Costa Rica. So kudos to Southwest. No way. I completely missed that. That's lovely. I mean, we know it's just a dress, but they would even send a representative to expect that lady that brought the dress at the airport. It's it's fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. So Yeah, I do too. Good on, as you say, good on Southwest. Another, uh, which obviously raises some eyebrows, that was in Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure about the airline, but it was a flight from Jeddah to Kuala Lumpur. And a passenger realize she had left her baby in the terminal. How do you even do that? <laughs> Reminds me of these stories where sometimes people do like a pit stop, so they refuel their car and they leave and they forgot a kid. Inshallah, can we come back? That was what the pilot said in the air traffic control after like being a bit like, what? They allowed it and uh, said, this is a totally new one for us. Jeez. How do you get on the plane, sit down, get your glass of champagne and go, I feel like I'm missing something. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe the, the name of the boarding pass was only the last two letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another one, and this is uh, Air Canada flight, and there was a passenger in business class that caused five hours of delay and returning to the airport. Why? Because he discovered that there was no gluten-free or meat-free meals and was shouting at all the crew, one way or another, I will get my fish. Either you serve it to me or I will serve it to myself. And at some point, the pilot has had enough and just went back to the gate, expelled said passenger. But of course, that triggered the entire delay. I don't know what the, the backstory is. Maybe they forgot the special meal they requested for. But please do not do that kind of thing. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I'm always ultra sensitive about situations on airplanes because in many countries interfering with the duties of a oh. flight crew member is a federal crime uh <laughs> and can get you in a lot of trouble and get you tased pretty quickly too so <laughs> I, I i you know do they have tasers on board in europe Ooh, i don't 
think so. In the US, I'm pretty sure they do. The Marshal has it. They still a Marshal, right? Flying. I, I believe so. In Europe, in Air France, for instance, the crew that has a red badge is also a security officer. I always remember one short flight similar that you did from London to Paris. The guy who was serving me food was clearly some ex Legion guy. <laughs> he had he was very kind of uh, awkward at delivering food, but he felt like so well built. I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna mess with that guy. <laughs> no, wow, that's hilarious. I didn't know that about Air France and the red badge. Red badge, watch it out, guys. So uh, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> or reassuring, or reassuring, okay. uh, depending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably was not a legion. I think you lose your identity, you become a new person, yeah, yeah. I think, or whatever. I don't think you can be hired by an airline after that. I mean, at least I do not hope so. So uh, talking about the food, this time not to go back to the gate, just because we love food and drinks. Uh, for the moment, you're not drinking, so sorry, Alex. Uh, Qantas has been named as the airline offering the best onboard wines in first and business class overall. That happened at the Sellers in the Sky Awards. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, I think there's something to do with Business Traveler magazine, or they have an affiliation if they're not run by them. But I, I like reading about that stuff. And the second is Cathay Pacific. The third place is shared between Qatar and ANA. All airlines, we do fly. I mean, we don't fly, of course, Qantas. That's a shame on us. And we still have a lot of Australian listeners telling us that when is the next airport in Australia? Well, we first have to go there, but I promise you we'll end up going there. Yes. British Airways got the award for having the best business class wine list. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'll tell you, I haven't flown in. Well, actually, I don't, I don't know. But I, my initial reaction to that is surprised that Emirates isn't on that list, given how much they invest in their yeah. wine. But I agree. I, I'm not surprised that any of those airlines are on that list, including BA. But I'm never blown away by the wine BA. With the Emirates, I'm always floored by the wine list. And same with same. Cathay. And American Airlines was highly commended for its overall seller. I don't know what that actually means, but it means they're making an effort, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, there's this um, myth that, you know, to fly in style, you have to drink champagne. I just singled out the champagne category. The best first-class sparkling is a joint between Air France, Cathay Pacific, and Qantas from uh, Tatingue, uh, Blanc de Blanc 2006. And the silver medal is, again, a joint award between ANN and Qatar Airways for Krug, and also Singapore Airlines from Dom Perignon. And the bronze medal is for Oman Air with Louis Roderer. So there you go. This is where you need to fly. If you fly first class, if you fly Business class, however, the gold medal was won by Qatar Airways, uh, the Blanc de Blanc again, and I, I can commend that, a silver medal by Ever Air. We still need to fly that. I, yeah. And a bronze medal, good for them, by Malaysia Airlines. So there you go. I'm very surprised not to see Emirates, at least in first class, because they have very special Don Perignons, special editions. It feels bizarre that they're not listed anywhere. Yeah, it is weird. There's some anomaly there. Don't know what it is. Oh, and you will like that because you will fly them, maybe because you were hesitating with United. The best business class white wine category was won by JetBlue. Oh, was it? Well, good for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I am hesitating because JetBlue are disproportionately more expensive for the route that I want to do. So I'm going to wait and see what happens in the next couple of months. What voodoo their revenue management team try and do. <laughs> the, the only uh, criticism I will give to these awards is that all the tasting happened at 
to London Governor's Hotel, which is great because it's a very nice hotel if you ever guys stay there, but it's underground. So I was wondering if these judges shouldn't be flying while they're testing all these things to actually see how these things taste yep. in flight. I think that's a big deal. Uh, that reminds me that since we're talking about wine, the food, I forgot to talk about something in my earlier flights in the earlier episode. It was already a very long description. Sorry, guys. First of all, the stir-fried pork on the 350-1000 by Cathay Pacific was one of the best dishes I ever had in the sky. So there you go. That's yeah. one of recommendation from me. But the interesting thing is when I was flying back on that uh, 777 with Cathay Pacific from San Francisco to Hong Kong, the guy next to me, so on the center seats, if you want, went for three, three entrees. He had three times a steak. He, he had the same dish three times. Yeah, so he had one, and I, then I saw he, he pressed the button and requested another one. And then press a button because another one, I was like, he's not even a bodybuilder or something, like looking for extra what? protein. I mean, I've <laughs> seen people that, you know, like, and I maybe have been guilty of this a couple of times when you're in a premium seat and everything looks good. And you're like, can I be unbelievably cheeky and try one and another? Because you just want to see what, you know, you want to try it and make the most <laughs> of your experience. But to have the same one, that's, that's, that's crazy. And I told you the story, interestingly, since we're there. On that flight, I found that, you know, that was the longest of all the flights I've done uh, in this recent period. It was a 15 and a half hour flight. And yes, we were departing at 10 p.m., but it's still a 15 and a half hours flight. Yeah. And it seemed to me that the catering was less good than any of the other flights I've ever done by Cathay Pacific. I thought, you know, maybe, you know, catering at San Francisco is not that great, but especially it felt that... They were rushing everything. So I understand that, you know, people want to sleep because it's 10 p.m. So probably people wanted to sleep. And I get that. The only problem is that because it's such a long flight, they should have a little bit more freedom like someone like me who didn't want to sleep because I was trying to adapt to another time zone, mm -hmm. in which case. And they rushed to the service. They didn't have all the options. There was no cheese. Again, I don't care because I don't really eat the cheese. But even the menu was restricted in what they were given. And it was not like, oh, you can have an express version. This is a traditional version. It was very, very uh, short. And what do you think about airlines that decide, I mean, most of them do, but especially on such long flights, when you should eat and how fast you should eat. I mean, I know we've talked about this a lot, you know, how they decide and when they decide, depending on the route and some of the bizarre choices, and we've never really cracked the code. But I liked the move maybe five, six, seven years ago of you as a passenger being allowed to determine when you eat. Yeah. But now if you rush somebody, that's a great way to degrade the premiumness, if you will, of an experience and, and mm -hmm. force them to eat at the pace determined by this. And actually, where were, I was on a flight. Oh, yeah. Going to, to San Francisco last month, it felt like an eternity between whatever the hell they were serving us, lunch after takeoff and then a meal before we landed. It was like eight hours. And I asked the flight attendant, I said, Do you, when, when is the next meal? Because my kids are getting cranky and just so, you know, should I give them a snack or not? And she takes me over and we look at the, or he, when we look at the schedule that they have posted in the galley for all of the flight crew yeah. to see when these things happen. And it's written, I think, in flight duration as opposed to relative okay. time. But yeah, it was frustrating. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly what you... So imagine it's 15 hours. So we had also like a breakfast because we we're landing at 4.45 a.m., I think, in Hong Kong. So you eat super fast because, you know, there was not even dessert listed on the menu. 
You could have like, you know, a little Moven pick ice cream if you actually want a dessert, but there was no listed. You know, you know, usually at the Pacific, you have like three choices of dessert and et cetera. So you eat super fast and then you have 13 hours and you're like, so and, and yeah. it's super long. I mean, of course you have the snacks and whatever. I was just thinking about, I get it that some people might want to sleep and maybe sleep for 12 hours and then have a little breakfast. But I think it was a bit imposing that they would go, especially because, again, it's, it was a very an exception of... So maybe it's catering. Maybe SFO just sucks in catering or their handler there sucks. I don't know. Anyway, it was an interesting uh, tidbit. On the, the 3.30 from Hong Kong to Dubai, smoked duck, apricot compote, creamy celeriac, and green apple salad is the best starter I ever had in my life in a flight. Sounds amazing. There you go. Cathay Pacific, you still win awards with me. I'm I'm the new Awards in the Sky by Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, are you still looking at flying Emirates soon? I, I lost track, actually. No, I'm not. I'm flying Etihad in a couple of weeks, but no. Where, I'm, where, I don't... where are you going with that? Oh, Delhi. No. Oh, okay. That's a new airport again. Yeah. <laughs> Because I don't think I've mentioned it, when I was booking Emirates, there's two new features that are fascinating. One is that on the website, at least, I'm not sure on the app, when you select your seat, you have a 360-degree view in each yes, seat. Yes, super cool. Not pixelated or everything, like very well-defined. You can really see what kind of seat you'll have. It's fantastic. And the second thing, which is a bit of a gimmick, but I tried it and it works, once you've booked and you've booked your seat, you can pre-select the movies that you want to see during the flight on the website and that will appear on your favorites on the IFE. That's pretty cool. That is cool. That is very cool. <laughs> Honestly, I loved it. I really loved that. The other little tidbit, the last one, and then I'll move on about that trip that I forgot to mention. I have... Decided, because you remember, guys, I try to fly with mostly a backpack and not a carry-on these days. People judge you differently. Even though I'm in business class for these flights, for instance, someone with a carry-on would look like a professional. Someone with a backpack looks like a backpacker. And not that I'm being treated badly, but I can feel the difference, guys. I mean, honestly, That's it's interesting. interesting that in 2019 it still happened. But the one bit I want to mention is I have reduced a lot of stuff, so I didn't want to bring my laptop, and I only had my iPad. And I have a little stand done by 12,000, this company that does really nifty things for Macs and iPads. They do a lot of covers and whatever. And it's very dense metal. It opens up. When it's actually closed, it could be that the x-ray will detect it as a first a dense metal, but it could look like a knife. I usually huh. try to remember that I have to put it out on the tray, opened so that they can see otherwise it'll ask me. Because every time I forget, and I forgot three times, my bag would be on the other you know, line and I would have to go and show them. Interestingly, and that's why I love San Francisco as well, I forgot to remove it. The guy sees it and he looks at me and says, that's an iPad stand, right? How do you know? Like, I've seen so many geeks in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they've seen every possible iteration of every device accessory. I love that. And did you ever have random airdrops on your iPhone? <laughs> People attempted, but I've always rejected yeah, them. me too. But I mean, it's crazy how it happened. So airdrop, for those who don't know, because we don't have an iPhone, it's a system to simply airdrop that's very clear to drop stuff from if you're close enough from one device to another and when you have the feature on in receive mode if you want uh then people can airdrop your stuff and 
I refuse this stuff, but I got like pictures from women and like a picture of a garden. And I, because you see the first one and I said, reject, reject. And somebody was insisting to sending me. And I'm like, what? That's what is weird, isn't it? strongest people. But in a good twist of that story, and it didn't happen to me, it happened to a friend of mine. She was stuck, I think, in a Ryanair flight here in Europe on the ground. I think it was in the UK for like three hours or something. You know how dreadful that can be. And this gentleman decided to airdrop pictures of puppies to the entire flight. So she accepted the first one and then he kept dropping. And when she asked him over airdrop by sending a note that was screenshotted, why do you do this? He said, well, this sucks, but at least picture of puppies make it a better time. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting use of airdrop. <laughs> anyway, so you told me that news. Cathay Pacific might be interested in acquiring Hong Kong Express. Yes, the ailing Hong Kong Express, which we've talked about three or four episodes ago, that they were in all kinds of trouble, which they vehemently deny that they are in all kinds of trouble. But I think the evidence suggests that perhaps that they are in Hong Kong. <laughs> Cathay Pacific has said that they are in talks, in formal talks, to acquire some or all of Hong Kong Express. How that would manifest itself is yet to be determined, and Cathay have been have pointed out that there's nothing formal, there's nothing agreed. The structure of any acquisition is still way up in the air. But how do you feel about this, if that were to go ahead? I don't know. I like Hong Kong Express. I use them to fly to Ishigaki whenever we go there. Let's also be clear that they are a reasonably separate entity from Hong Kong Airlines, but they are owned, at least in part, by the same parent company. HNA. Which yes, has a lot of issues. Who, uh, yes, exactly. Who are also in. Um, I think it would be an interesting feather in their cap or arrow in their quiver for Cathay, whether they would keep it the low cost carrier that it is, or whether they would just sell the airplanes and keep the slots. I don't know what they would do with it, to be honest with you. So it's hard to it's hard to have an opinion until I know what they're going to do. It's also interesting that for those who don't know. Cathay Pacific is restricted to serve Chinese provincial cities other than, of course, flying from Hong Kong. So this is also probably why they're looking at expanding because China is an important market by acquiring other companies. Yeah, absolutely. And this wouldn't be the first time. I mean, obviously, Cathay Dragon was Dragon Air, which was an independent airline. And also the, the freighter Air Hong Kong. Air Hong Kong, yep. That was independent as well. It comes on the back of a time when Cathay have reported really strong profits. So this turnaround plan that they put into place two years ago is really starting to bear fruit. So the timing is right. The demand for cheap air travel in Asia is booming. So it might be a pretty strong strategic move for Cathay. On Instagram, where is Day K, who just flew for the first time Qantas 318 business class, lucky you, I know you guys love the pier, and rightfully so, but you must check out the Qantas lounge at HKG. It's so much better than most of the other lounges. It's on the same level as the Cathay lounges in Hong Kong. There you go, Alex. That's, That's quite a discovery. We well, should try that. I know exactly where that lounge is. When you come out of security, you turn left to that small yep. little pier of gates. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to try it. I'll have to try it. Yeah, there's no comparison to the LA chair one, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's not a bad lounge. It's just not as good as the Cathay one. <laughs> 
Another story, you remember, guys, I had flown SAS, I think it was two years ago, to go to the US. It still feels a little bit like a public entity, but they had retrofitted like new seats on their 340s. As you know, I'm not a big fan of the 340. So they advertise that, and it's really cool. I've tried the seats. It's, it's a nice flight. You have to go obviously through the Nordic, so either, I think, Oslo, Copenhagen to fly SAS. The thing is, and I didn't know it, it happened to a friend of mine. Hello, Julie. She travels a lot, more than us. Crazy. So she tried SAS, and she saw it like, oh, it looks a great product. I was looking online and everything. And then ends up in a super old plane, like an SAS. And apparently SAS is hiding the fact that there's a single plane. And I'm going to give you the registration for these geeks. I want to avoid it. (laughs) LN-RKP. That one has not been retrofitted and will not be retrofitted. But they don't tell you that. It's super dated. Like, she would tell me the features on the seat would not work, the IFE would not work. It's really like the very, very old-fashioned SAS. It's not even lie flat. It's like uh, angled or whatever. And no Wi-Fi, obviously. So basically, guys, if you ever want to fly this, avoid LN-RKP and shame on you, SAS, for not telling the passengers that they still exist. <laughs> Since we're in the Nordics, Norwegian, the chairman, uh, Bjorn Kise, said that the deal with IAG that was supposed to happen didn't happen. It didn't happen because of Brexit. Thank you, Brexit. <laughs> Brexit. Yeah, I've just given up. <laughs> yeah, me too. So let's stay in the Nordics again with Norwegian. The poor guys have to remove the 737 MAX out of their fleet. I think Greg Annandale was supposed to fly that in a few days, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, yes. I'm sure. I'm sure it's a boon for all these, you know, like Titan and all these guys who are like doing super fast replacements because suddenly uh, Norwegian will be looking for more. <laughs> I mean, Norwegian is not lucky. They have the Dreamliner. We had strength issues in the 737 Max, and that now is grounded. I mean, really, yeah, bad they luck. really <laughs> are not having a good time with it. But they, yeah, they've said they're going to demand compensation from Boeing, as I'm sure a lot of other people will too. Mm. But Norwegian, on top of that, managed to lose more than 200 million dollars on hedge. Uh, fuel. So they're hedging their fuel and they lost. So it's not fun for them. I think Delta had lost $4 billion in 2016 trying to do that. JetBlue stopped in 2017. So if you guys, yeah, because maybe I'm talking about hedging and people don't know. You, you buy a contract which sets your price for oil, in that case for the kerosene, ahead of time. And yeah. as long as the price stays within a threshold, you're basically fine and you don't pay the new price of the oil. But if the oil goes into another direction, so for it drops a lot, well, then suddenly you have to pay the price of that contract back and you lose a lot of money, $4 billion. <laughs> Yeah, Cathay got absolutely screwed on this as well. Yeah, I was about to say that. What is interesting is the only airline that seemed to be continuing and succeeding at this, and another point for them for being very smart, is Southwest. They were able to limit the rise of their oil price, of their kerosene price, by below 10%, whereas the entire industry then had to pay more. They're very smart people. I admire them. I admire them, too. I think it's it's basically the equivalent of, I don't even know, it's literally trying to predict the future. Yeah. They are extremely good at it. In the U.S., since we're in the U.S., we talked about the uh, DOT at the beginning, it fined American Airlines $1 million and Delta a bit less, I think 800000 for tarmac delays. So I said the DOT was being apathic, but actually they do find people. Uh, I think there's a rule in the U.S. that if you stay on a tarmac for more than three hours 
for domestic flights and more than four hours for international flights, you get fined. But of course, there's security, safety, air control problems, and yeah, the same. So there is some kind of the passengers. I don't think they see it, but at least there is fines. I wasn't aware of that. No, I didn't know that either. I, is it me or is the, is the U.S. the only country where this, these unbelievable tarmac delays seem to happen with reasonable regularity? I don't I, know. I don't have enough experience to say that. Uh, yeah, I or maybe that their regulator is the most strict about it. But I think I get angry when you know you're stuck waiting at a gate for a T5 for like 15 minutes, let alone hours and hours and hours. They absolutely should be fined, but yeah, it only seems to happen in America. <laughs> Since we're still in the U.S., United is about to unveil a new globe. Wow. I don't know what to... Yeah. Uh, First of all, the globe is continental, let's be honest. It's not United, but... It is iconic. It is. Which is why they probably were right to actually keep it when they merge and they remove the name continental. Munoz says it's a refresh, evolution. I don't remember the word he used. And they're going to include purple, which is used for premium economy now, and a new shade of blue called Rhapsody Blue. I mean, like, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Why would you? I'm, I, I'm very interested to see how this looks because it's, it's delicate. I love the word delicate, yeah. I'm always afraid when you take such an iconic logo and you try to refresh it. Either yeah. you go away and do something new, but refresh something that is so iconic, usually spells disaster but let's let's you know we're starting to like united so united give us a, a good globe please <laughs> yes please <laughs> talking about the doing makeup on a plane this one is a bit different the virgin atlantic will no longer require their female cabin crew to wear any makeup during flights and it will also as part of the normal choice of clothes allow a trousers or pants depending on which country you are whereas until now it was on request welcome to 2019 i guess but they're one of the first ones to do so that's good it is good. It's a sign of the times, and perhaps it's a little weird to me that it's taken this long for an airline, let alone most airlines, to do it. Yeah. There was this, uh, talking about the removing stuff, there was this photo, I think maybe two weeks ago on Twitter, where there was, on an Air France flight, there was a guy, bulkhead in economy, removed his trousers, since we talked about trousers, and socks, and spent the entire flight in his boxers and a t-shirt. What? 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 Oh You're the God. flight man. How, how do you that do that? That is so bad. It's that gross. so bad. <laughs> so from ditching makeup to ditching the last leg of booking, skip lagging? Uh, it's always something. So skip lagging. What is skip lagging, Alex? Skip lagging is when you book a multi-leg itinerary and you fail to take the last leg because you've booked something like a great ex-EU business class deal on BA starting in Stockholm or Oslo or something. And... You fly to Oslo and then you fly back to London to get the great fare to, say, Bangkok. And then from Bangkok to London, you just get off in London and you don't take that final leg back. So in Germany, Lufthansa saw a passenger do that. says that a customer paid 657 euros for the ticket, while he should have paid 2,769 euros and thus is demanding the difference, so 2,112 euros, to the passenger in way of courts and saying that skip lagging should be illegal. The case is in the courts right now. It's pretty harsh. Mm, that is harsh. That is harsh. And I think probably unnecessary. I think it's one of those things where 
you could solve this if you were a little bit more competitive with your pricing across cities. I mean, if the fair discrepancy is big enough to warrant people having discovered and exploiting this loophole, then I think there's a problem with the fair structure and not with the loophole. <laughs> Actually, that's what they went first to court and they lost and then they went to the, the following one. But the first court said that fares lack transparency on the airline side. And that's what they were signing on the side of the customer. Iberia went to court in Spain and lost. In the US, I think it was a court in Illinois, I think, when uh, you remember there was a, a website that was doing that for you. And I think United tried yeah. the court through, through them out. I said, no, no, they can't do it. It was skiplagging or skiplagger.com, something like that. Your brother, Will, says, in what other world does this make sense? If I buy a prefix menu at a restaurant, I don't get charged extra for not eating the chocolate souffle. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's very true. It's very true. I think, uh, yeah, it would be the equivalent of the of the restaurant saying, yeah, but we could have sold that to somebody else. Else, exactly. Like, dude, right? I paid for it already. <laughs> the only thing I will say, the only one I would say in which airlines maybe have some reason, security reasons. The no, because they wouldn't be they wouldn't be trying to go after fares if that was the case. You're right. I've never done ski plugging with Lufthansa and probably will avoid it. Talking about the Lufthansa Lufthansa group and talking about the airline. Did you like the 340 yourself or you don't? No. <laughs> okay, fine. Not because a fan. the good news then they are buying 40 brand new long haul aircraft at a cost of 12 billion these these prices. Yeah. Uh they're going to buy Dreamliners, 20 of them and an additional because I think you already have 12 uh, 35900s and they are clearly saying that this is to replace for engine aircraft, which also means, by the way, the 380. The 380 will be sold back to Airbus. I don't know what kind of deal they made to actually selling it back, but Airbus will buy these uh, 380s back before, again, the end of the 12 years. We say 12 years because it was usually kind of everybody believed that was the, the, the lifeline before going to the secondary market. So certainly everybody's ditching the 380 faster than we thought. Do you think that that was a provision in the original purchase agreement, that they would buy them back at, uh -huh. a, at a certain cost or something like that? Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Maybe you're right, actually. Interesting point. Maybe they said, okay, we will take the risk of having such massive ships, but only if you agree to buy them back at the end of the contract. Oh, wow. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh. Another sign that Alex is smarter than me. Um, by the way, these uh, purchasing of 40 aircraft is for the Lufthansa Group, so it could be including Austrian and uh, Swiss. Swiss is still 340s as well, and Austrian uh, still has actually 767s that are pretty, pretty old. The last one is not for engine, but that could be also replacing. We don't know what the mix was going to get what, but it would be nice to have newer aircrafts and finally the new business class for uh, Lufthansa. And you send that to me. Qatar has also confirmed that they will stop the 380 after 10 years. And I think we had said 12 also as well before. So yeah, they're all ditching the 380 faster, my God. Yeah, yeah. They've Now that this is, you know, proving to be the end of the line, I don't think this will be the last of those announcements either. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of good opportunities for BA to buy the, uh, yeah. the 380 if they want. So BA has released their new livery, the fourth and last vintage livery. So which one is it, Alex? It is the predecessor to the predecessor. <laughs> <laughs> it's the predecessor to the Landor livery. And it's the first sort of, well, it's really the first British Airways livery because it was the one that came right after 
the BEA merger, the Negus, N-E-G-U-S, which because it was designed by the agency Negus and Negus. Negus. And they were the ones that actually came up with what was then the British Airways logo. And it's the slightly more simplified wedge tail, mm-hmm. red wedge tail with the blue triangle, the blue plum line and the original British Airways typeface. So it looks it looks great. But with the BOAC, I don't know what that is, icon, if you will, uh, just underneath the cockpit. So uh, it looks cool. I am excited to see this. I'm almost not surprised they would go for that one because like you say, it's kind of the first British Airways. So, But I was kind of hoping for Imperial. I was too. Although I kept thinking if they had decided that it was always going to be three 747s, then yeah, the Imperial yeah. Uh, yeah. wouldn't wouldn't work. Although if you think about it on the flying boats, or maybe it would have just looked a bit <laughs> military, you know? Yeah. So maybe. I'm so excited about this. I, I haven't actually seen any of them in person yet, and I hope no, I will yeah. in, in some upcoming travels. I really hope that one day, whether it's officially or from on the sides, we will learn the process and maybe see sketches of other, because maybe they drilled down on these four, but at first they said everything is open. So let's try designing these ones on various aircrafts of our fleet before actually uh, choosing these four ones. It would be really nice to see what could have been. Yeah, I would love to. It must have been a fun process yeah. to go through, whether you're the designer or or just peripherally involved in the process, in the project. That must have been fun. Yeah. Back to Lufthansa, because we were talking about that before uh, veering off to our beloved, beloved, I don't know, BA. Uh, Very interesting, very, very interesting feedback from one of our listeners, Zach on Twitter, I think, if I remember correctly, Z-D-E underscore P on Twitter. He was listening to our discussion about, you remember the doctor on board, whether or not there's always a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I didn't know that. Lufthansa has an actual program called Lufthansa Doctor on Board. He says that he's a US-based physician. He's flown only Lufthansa once ever, so it doesn't make sense for him to enroll. But doctors can enroll. And I've looked at the website, lufthansa.com slash doctor dash on dash board. They have more than 10,000 physicians registered. Wow. So basically what it means is that in flight... They have no need to call easier doctor on board because their systems will tell them that there's a doctor in 23A, for instance, because that person is registered with a program. How smart is that? That's a great idea. That's a great idea. So they yeah. don't have to make the announcement and maybe no. panic people a little bit. They can just discreetly approach the person that's... Exactly. I mean, I'm sure that you know there will be instances where they still need to do that. But did you say 10,000? Yeah, Almost 11,000. Wow, so that's a pretty good... Uh, what a neat a ID. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And these people can enroll for special courses about how to do emergency care in the clouds. And they do, because that's probably also why they, they decide to enroll to the program. And they are provided with the same emergency kits that they will have in flight, so they basically prepare themselves. Uh, it's really f- fantastic. And answering our question about how they're compensated... They will receive a mileage credit and a voucher for the next flight in return for their services. And the airline, and that's also very important for physicians, the airline assumes all liability for any medical treatment errors that might happen in flight. So they're covered. They're helping, but they don't have to be afraid that if something really bad is happening, they're still trying to help, and the person, for instance, sadly passes away. They're not liable. It's a fascinating program. It's such a good idea. How yeah, right. How not 
propagated this uh, further because it's a great idea. I really found that amazing and proving to be successful. A few reviews. We haven't had them for a long time. First, and I love that one. Thank you so much. Pats Forever from Australia. See, Australia is always popular with us. The title of the review says it all. An aviation podcast even my wife will listen to. <laughs> well, that's I like that praise. That's very kind. Delightful mix of upper reviews, news stories from the vault, and curious personal takes on the world of aviation. The enthusiasm and genuine friendship expressed in their voices is infectious. Oh, thank you. Uh, this is the only podcast out of my collection that my wife will tolerate listening to in the car. I am enjoying my deep drive through the back catalog while I eagerly await the next episode. Please record as often as you can, guys. And please record more Australian airport reviews in the future. Yes, on both counts. We are trying our best. Australia, maybe in 2019, we'll go there again. I hope so. Another five-star on iTunes Steel or Apple Podcast, as it's called now, by CJNZ from New Zealand. See, down under. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love listening to you guys on my waterproof iPod while I'm swimming up and down the pool every morning in New Zealand. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> exactly. You need to fly Air New Zealand on Star Alliance to experience the ultimate in professional friendliness and awesome safety videos. Yes, it's true. It's one airline that... Uh, have you ever flown them? I, I've never. No. Uh, well, when I was a teenager. I love the livery, all black. Oh, I know. So it's cool. It's fantastic. And I had met actually people from... from they even gave me a gift, uh, which is a... Some kind of like VR thing. I can look inside of the aircraft. It's, it's pretty cool. But only through it through VR, which is not very interesting. So I need to fly them. Uh, yes. So CJ and Z, we will uh, come to New Zealand at some point. We promise you that. Though you can fly London to LA with it, Air New Zealand. Yes, you can. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those great uh, open skies legs that I'm always on the, on the look for. I've never actually done that, even though I do that route reasonably frequently. Yeah, because it's Star Alliance, maybe. Maybe you were hesitating for points, but it's. I would I would try that. I yeah, would, yeah, me too. I would definitely try that. On Instagram, at Geocasual, George, hi, Paul and Alex, recently discovered your podcast. I've been loving it. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Angelo, at Beta underscore Bing 85 on Twitter. <laughs> your show is fantastic. I love the energy between you and the stories you share. I'm based in South Africa and listen to you on my way to work. My whole week is made when I see a new episode. Thank you for sharing your experiences and allowing me to also share them through you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Oh, that's that great. Very, very kind. Another, someone else from South Africa, another, uh, we've done airports there, but we don't go uh, enough there. I've never actually been for my sins. On Instagram at PG Ortler, P Gortler, I'm not sure how to pronounce <laughs> that. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fireman in the U.S. who enjoys travel with a family. On my long shifts at work, I plan future travels and geek out on the podcast. Thanks again. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So nice. I hope you're not listening when the fire is happening. That's the only yes, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> at Mari underscore Lax on Instagram again. And sorry, guys, because I haven't updated Instagram in ages. Words cannot express how much I love your podcast, guys. If episodes lasted five hours, it still would be interesting. You guys really rock. Little hint, please make more podcasts. No, <laughs> oh, that's kind. <laughs> guys, we really don't have the time we wish. No, I'm not sure actually we wish doing five hours. I mean, I, it's enough to me to see Alex for two hours. Uh, no, I'm <laughs> kidding. 
Uh, Rick Wilson on Facebook, love your podcast, keep up the great work. I listened to your podcast on my recent trip to Cape Town on Singapore Airlines, a good choice of airline here. And he had something that goes back to uh, episodes ago. Remember when the Canadian air traffic controllers were sending pizza to their American counterparts uh, during the shutdown? He says, this was started by air traffic controllers in my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta. Wow. There you go. You have a great nice. hometown. Yes, great people. Ross Mainson at rmainson44. Well, guys, I did not get to any lounge, but I did get pizza on my KLM flight from Amsterdam to Abu Dhabi, and it was good. There's pizza on KLM. I didn't know I that. I didn't know this either. Wow. I'm nice. interested to try that. Yeah. One point. <laughs> One for KLM here. Still talking about pizza. Julian.est on Instagram. There's pizza in the Senator Lounge in STR. What are STR? STR? Or Stuttgart, no? So of course it, yeah. Yeah, Stuttgart. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. He also said that he was listening to Leia was on a BA flight, 8252 from Hamburg to Friedrichshafen, which is operated by a Dornier 328. Cool. Wow. I'm very That's jealous. That's rare. And along with another FDH, what's FDH? Friedrichshafen, of course. Yeah. Along with Dusseldorf to Friedrichshafen, that is also done by a German-made aircraft. So there's two lines. Wasn't, because you have better knowledge than me about the British aviation industry, was there not at some point a German BA or something like that? Uh, that's a good question. I know that there were subsidiaries, but I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty sure BA acquired stakes in something. Deutsche BA, German BA, I don't know. Something in the back of my head that tells me that existed at some point. Daim. D-A-A-A-Y-I-M on Instagram. Since you guys are interested in trying out United, I just wanted to tell you, just in case you don't know already, they recently got brand new 787-10s with brand new Polaris product. Uh, They're flying it between Newark and LAX or SFO and also Newark to Europe. Oh, wow. I flew the 767 last time. I didn't know that they had this one. So that's something for you, Alex. Yeah, I, I had a look. Gone. I had a look. And they do. It's it's a little harder to find, but they're testing it on that route at the moment. It looks it looks great. Pop Lambeck on Instagram. Philip Lambeck. Super cool. <laughs> I really enjoy your podcast. At 42 years of age, I'm still like a kid when it comes to airports and flying. Well, Join the club. To, well, yeah, welcome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, thought send you a snap of me listening to one of your episodes on a recent trip with my daughter to Hamburg. And he sent us a picture of him and his daughter. Of course, I'm not going to put that on Instagram, but thank you so much. It's very cool. And hello, daughter. Yeah, that's really cool. I hope, you, uh, <laughs> hope she enjoys it. <laughs> yes. It was BA, so the flight he just did, with a really poor soft product. <clears throat> mm. <laughs> sometimes awesome BA, sometimes it's really bad. Yeah, that's frustrating, uh, isn't it? And he asks us to get Mark back on as yes. a guest. We will. We're working on we it. Will. And if you don't know, but I'm sure you all know, he's writing now for the EFT, the Financial Times. He has a column there. and It's always very nice. It's a uh, great column, yeah. Congrats, Mark, by the way, for, for doing that. I read that with passion. Oh, yeah. I should add, Mark, by the way, that Philip, in his message, your first book, Mark, persuaded him, so Philip, to go back booking window seats. Ah, good. He only gives up the seat if he flies with his kids. Okay. Ah, well, yeah, that's that's my policy too. You being a very nice dad, and I <laughs> commend you. Okay. Well, they're small, so I can still see over their heads. <laughs> 
Yes. And obviously, going back to the first review from Pats Forever, we also are saying hello to your wife. So I don't know your name, but hello and thank you for agreeing to listen to this podcast in the car with your husband. Hello, thank you yes. so much. You're tolerating it. <laughs> and to all the partners and wives and husbands that are listening to this, to us mumbling for two hours or so every two weeks or so, thank you. And we appreciate your dedication to your partner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear. Oh, well, anyway, so let's go to the airport, Astana. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you went there and back? Or did we do that already? I forgot. No, we didn't. I flew on Air Air Astana. Oh, yes, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. It was great. It was really, really good. It was actually very, 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 very good. I had not much expectation, good or bad, because I think only you're the only person I know that's flown on them. They go out of this strange wasteland that is Heathrow Terminal 4. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that terminal, but it's just it's, odd. Yeah. It's just odd. Even its location, it's if you look at a map, it's like this little protuberance on the south. And you're like, what is it doing there? You yeah. Know? <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah. Well, actually, how I got to Terminal 4 is probably just as important. I was in Camden for work, and... The event that I was speaking at was was running over, as most events tend to do. But mercifully, I had booked a wonderful limo bike, which is one of oh. these motorcycles that used to, it used to be owned by Virgin, which is why I know them so well. I know the guys that run it. I know most of the riders. And wow. whenever I'm even remotely on a tight schedule, I use these guys because there was no way that a taxi or public transport was going to get me out there on time. But my rider, Damon... Picked me up. I threw on a, a helmet and a jacket. My hand luggage was in the back, and we zigzagged through the traffic. Because I've done only that in Paris, which is a great way to avoid traffic on the periphérique. So, just how much luggage? A carry-on is fine. Yeah, a cabin bag is fine, um, and a, and your laptop bag or whatever. Did you say jacket? Did you provide you with a jacket? They provide that... you with a jacket. No and way. They provide you with rain cover if necessary. Helmet, oh, wow. gloves, all that stuff. This Bluetooth connected to the driver so you can you can chat the whole way. Oh wow. And we zipped in and out and he knew every shortcut and back cut and you know secret way and we got there with uh, just the right amount of time. Yeah, I love those guys limobike.com if you ever need a service like that. I will definitely try that. I wasn't even aware of their existence. Yeah. It's such a good service. I love them. They're good guys. So, uh yeah, I had a second to eat in the lounge there, the Star Alliance lounge, which is fine. It's a 757, and then my expectations were lower because they are older airplanes. But I walked on board, and I was <laughs> blown away. Yeah, right. The business class cabin is so cool. It looked, the plane looked brand new on the yeah. inside. Cool wow. mood lighting. It's two by two, because 757 obviously is a, a single aisle narrow body. The seat was comfortable. Although it's not lie flat, it's one of those angled seats, which which they fully admit is a weakness on on their end, and they're in the process of updating their other their other big aircraft that's got full lie flat, and they've got A three twenty ones as well. And some, but the seven fifty seven is perfect for what is a very long flight. It's actually nearly seven hours from London to Astana, and it's the perfect airplane for that type of route. I believe they have some other airplanes on order, but for now. It was very, very good. They give wow. you an iPad loaded with content. I flew 
the 320. I never flew the 757, and wow, I'm very impressed with that, actually. Yeah. But was, they also gave us a, gave us an iPad, which is cool. The yeah, iPad loaded with content, and then there's a moving map at the front of the cabin. I think it had four rows of seats. Yes, it did have four rows of seats. And the food was outstanding, but the service is what got me. It was so damn good. It was very Asian. I mean, and they are a Central Asian carrier, but it was very Cathay Pacific, Singapore. It was of that caliber. So, so good. Amazing amenity kit. I slept very well for the flight, which lands at five o'clock in the morning at Astana. Immigration at the airport was very easy. It was not in any way Russian. The ladies there, super friendly and welcoming and to this uh, very new international terminal, which has only been opened about 18 months, if that. Yep. But Aristana, wow, on the flight back again. Oh, well, the flight back, man, this was unreal. So I was giving a speech to, I don't know how much I can say here, but one of the people in attendance was the CEO of Aristana, who, oh, wow. who cool. I have a passing connection with. I always mention Diet Coke in my speeches because it's my example of a brand I have a strong affiliation with. And it's kind of become Alex Hunter, the Diet Coke guy, because I've mentioned it for 10 years in a row now. And that's fine. And I mentioned it and did my usual spiel and and he had to dash off early. So I didn't really even get a chance to have a conversation with him. But when I boarded the plane the next morning, actually, the flight attendant greeted me at the door beaming and said, Mr. Hunter, welcome on board, and handed me a Diet Coke. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I, t- I said, hey, thanks, th- thanks a lot. I sat down, and after I sat down, I was like, excuse me, how the hell did you do that? And she said, I know, it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, so many things were right there. For the CEO, the CEO who's got way bigger fish to fry, yeah. to have the presence of mind to... Tell somebody, I don't know who, there's something to work with here. And then for that to get all the way down and actually be acted upon by this crew member who delivered it with such a, you know, you never revealed how the magic trick was done. And I thought this was absolutely great. And of course, wonderful flight home, great food, fantastic service. They've got streaming within the airplane, so you can stream to your device for the for people in economy and in business class, and there's a little bit more content on there. I was so impressed with that airline, and I'm looking forward to potentially flying them again next month. Oh, wow. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's a five-star airline. Yes, it's a five-star. They've won Skytrax Award every year in a row since 2012. My flight was, what, 2015, I guess. So it's almost four years ago now. I had this, like, lasting memory of the crew first, like you. The product, the hard product was great. The iPad was super snappy with the content. I mean, everything, and back then it was even more impressive. I was sad not to to use them to go to Astana last November. Uh, you remember, guys, I used uh, Lufthansa in the dreaded Frankfurt. But I wish I could have used Aristana. The timing just didn't work because it's a fantastic airline. I highly recommend flying Aristana. I do too. I do too. So what do you think about the airport then? Because uh, we're at the airport. So Astana, so TSC first. The reason it's called TSC is because it's a new city, but not a new city. It's a city that dates, what, 250 years or something, was called Akmoli, then Akmolinsk. Then in 61, changed to Selinograd. And Selina means the Virgin Lands. 
which is actually very fitting. You're really in the middle of nowhere, and there's not a lot of people. So it's really virgin lands. And of course, this name was during the USSR. Then when they got their independence back, it went to Akmola, and not Akmoli. It's interesting. And then in 97, the president decided to move the capital city, which was Almaty, to Akmola, but named it Astana. And Astana means simply capital city, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's very, yeah. I asked someone there when I was, I got a tour by one of the guys. He took me out to visit the city, walk around and whatever at minus 20 Celsius. Oh, <laughs> it was fantastic. And I asked him, yeah, capital city. I'm like, really? It means just capital. But so that's why TSE, that's the name of the airport because that's Selinograd, that state. But the city is called Astana. The airport is called Astana Nur Sultan Nazarbayev International Airport. Nazarbayev is the president of the country, the the person we decided to actually uh, relocate the capital. So they also started, of course, work on the airport in 97 when they relocated. They created that new runway that is still there now, which is a pretty big runway, and started the reconstruction. I mean, the city itself is... You still have a little bit that is the old part, which is tiny, and now you have, I don't know your feeling, like we use the word eerie at the beginning because it's these massive boulevards in grid with massive buildings, a lot of them built by international renowned architects and designers, and you're in the middle of the step, right? Yeah, and yeah. it creates, I don't know if you felt that, but it creates this very special type of light. Of course, the latitude helps. But because there's nothing, there's no mountain, it's flat, 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 flat. It creates a very, also, again, I'm going to use the same word, eerie light, which is freaking fantastic. It's Uh, great. It's amazing. Probably the brisk, fresh air as well, the winter air, adds to the color of that light. But it's it's really impressive. It's mesmerizing. It's mesmerizing. I went up to the Biteric Tower, which is like their Eiffel Tower, and you look down towards the Presidential Palace, and I took a photo and posted on Instagram without a filter, and people were like, well, that's a weird filter. And the light is is yellow, but not in a um, sort of, I don't know, anemic way. <laughs> it's a very mesmerizing light that, that I've never experienced anywhere else in the world. I was lucky enough with, again, the person who took me around, we went to visit an Azerbaijan university, which is almost at the end of the current city. I said a current city because it keeps expanding. Mm. So you reach almost the end. And then after that, there is the space program. And you have like a Soyuz and you have a replica of Buran, which was the... Uh, the Russian space shuttle. The copy, I would say, right? But right there, the city stops. And so you have that light and you can see because the sun, again, because there's no obstacle, was at that point very low. So it, it creates... It was fantastic. I, I really recommend you guys, especially if you're into architecture that you visit that city. For me, it felt only in three years difference that it was already more populated. The last time it felt so empty, <laughs> it still feels empty-ish. Yeah, it does. But, uh, because also it's cold, so people do not walk and you have these massive boulevards. But I remember three years ago, before the expo, because now uh, uh, it was, I felt, and I'm sorry, because now lots of very good friends actually in Kazakhstan, it felt like the image you have of Pyongyang, you know, like, yes, everything massive, but empty. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's what it's I'm being talking. filled now because that's, you know, an ongoing plan and they're like, really, I've met, you know, governors, and I've met CEOs there as well. And they're really pushing ahead with this bridge between 
east and west and also acting this coming back to aviation here with Aristana a bit like a Dubai you know again a bridge when you stop and you have like international conferences and trade shows and they had the expo uh, two years ago yeah, as well that's why, yeah so that's actually why going back to the airport because we're becoming lyrical about the city here but <laughs> sorry guys <laughs> In 97, there was one terminal that no longer exists. When I went, there was a single terminal, which is now when you went Terminal 2, so it became a domestic terminal. So that's the one you would use to go to Almaty, for instance. That terminal kind of showed three years ago its age. And it was like, it's, it's okay. You know, procedures were fast. Everything was efficient. But it wasn't very beautiful. You felt it was an ongoing process back then. Well, uh, like you now and me three months ago, what a few years kind of difference it makes because yeah. holy cow, that new terminal is really nice. It's really nice. And I naively was expecting a Russian style process, you know, for immigration and security. It couldn't be further from the truth. Everything, the terminal was empty, absolutely <laughs> empty when I when I went through. Because you also landed very early in the morning, right? I, I did. And then even coming yeah. back, which is sort of mid-afternoon, you go through a dock check and then through security, there was nobody there. It was very friendly and efficient and easy. And then through outbound immigration, again, very friendly, efficient and easy. It's a bit sparse on airside. There is a lounge and it's fine, yeah. but there's not much else out there. Not that there's not much to do in the airport at all or anywhere around the airport. The thing is that the airport is not too far from the city, actually kind of no, close. No, it's like 15 uh, minutes tops. Yeah, and they have these massive roads anyway, so there's no traffic. Yeah. It was actually designed by a Japanese designer, this new terminal. Yeah, it's uh, cool. Would you do a uh, layover there? Uh, yeah, because you can't get into the city so well. Aristana serve a lot of cities in Asia, Hong Kong, Seoul, yep. I think yep. uh, several in China as well. So I, I would, I absolutely would. And for those who want to stop in Astana, so although we've mentioned just now that it was for both of us very cold, it can go to minus 35 Celsius in the winter. That's, that's I think, uh, minus uh, 30 Fahrenheit. I don't remember exactly the conversion. In the summer, however, it goes to plus... 35 Celsius. It's like more like Dubai, which is 95 Fahrenheit, guys. A totally different experience. I've only been in the winter and I loved it, but I want to see it. How is it in the summer as well? Yeah, me too. Me too. That's what everybody suggested. There you go. So next flights, what is in your agenda? Alex? I'm flying to Amsterdam on Tuesday. Nice. Uh, and then back on Wednesday on uh, BA out of Lucy. Okay. And then the following week, I fly to Delhi. Oh, yeah. You just mentioned. Oh, wow. So Etihad the whole way? Yes. Good, good. Can't wait for that. You're actually creating a problem for me, Alex, because you keep adding new airports and my list keeps growing and we're not recording fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about that. I don't know when we're going to record. Probably before, actually, Alex leaves to Delhi. This will be live. I'm not going to respect our usual rule to do every two weeks because of the first story, the 737, that would otherwise be completely obsolete by the time I release it. So I'm going to release it as fast as I can. As for me, I'm still not flying this month. So it's going to be, of course, uh, Moscow. But we'll probably talk about that in the next episode. On that, Alex, safe travels. Safe travels, guys. Safe travels, guys. 